Well, good morning again, church. I told first service because they kept talking and talking. I said, man, when we get to heaven, we could talk as long as we want. It'll be great. Well, if you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Revelation chapter 4 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Kevin will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation chapter 4 this morning. And we're going to be looking at verses 1. <laughs> There's a lot here, so we'll just do one and then we'll rest of the chapter next week. But All right, starting in verse 1, we read the Apostle John writing, telling us, After these things I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. The title of my message this morning is, Come Up Hither. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your word. Lord, knowing that you are here, Lord, to instruct us, to encourage us, to point us in the right path. Lord, the path of righteousness, we thank you, God, for sending your Son to die for us upon the cross and rise again from the dead and that we can have this life, eternal life, Lord. And we pray if there's anyone here that does not know you, at this point they don't, they're not sinned, they're not saved, Lord, they're still living in their sin, Lord, would you especially touch their heart today. We thank you for this time together, we thank you for your word, we commit it to you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, we have been studying the book of Revelation, and now we come to a change of scenery, if you will, moving from chapter 3 to chapter 4. And we pick it up here in chapter 4, remembering that it's the Apostle John who's writing this. He's been banished to the island of Patmos. He had just recently written, talked to us about the seven letters to the seven churches that he was instructed to, to write to and to send out that he received from Jesus. These were actual churches on the earth at that time in the, in the proximity of Asia, which is Turkey today, in which time we live. But the message that Jesus uh, gave was also for the church age, starting in the early church, the first church, and moving throughout church history. It moved to the persecuted church, about 8099 to 8300. And then we looked at, if you recall, the Roman Catholic Church, and we looked at the the Protestant Reformation, and then we looked at the Dark Ages when the Bible was taken away out of the hands of the people. And, and finally, then we looked at the Church of Philadelphia, the revived church, leading to the final church age, that of the Laodiceans, the lukewarm church, the, the Church of Apathy, the, the, the state of the church in the last days, just prior to Jesus' return. Well, as we come to chapters 4 and chapters 5, we leave earth, so to speak, and we're caught up in the heaven. Now, this will happen quite frequently as we go through the book of Revelation. We'll be a scene in heaven, then a scene back down on earth. A scene in heaven and a scene back down on earth. But this also brings us to our divine outline of the book of Revelation. If you recall, Revelation 1 verse 19 said this, uh, Jesus said, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And that really is the outline of the book of Revelation. The things which you have seen 
Well, Jesus, I mean, rather, John had seen Jesus. He had been with Jesus. He had walked with Jesus. He'd seen his risen Lord some 60 years earlier. We also saw John saw the Lord again in a vision, and John wrote down what he had seen, past tense. Then he was told, write down the things which are. Those are the seven churches, uh, seven letters, and he's writing to them. But now we come to outline number three, point number three, the things that will take place after this. Now this refers to the rapture of the church, the great tribulation period that follows, and even beyond the great tribulation, on into the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment, and on into eternity. But it's vital to our understanding this morning that the next prophetic event spoken of in Revelation is the rapture of the church. Then there will come a time known as the Great Tribulation, a time when God will be pouring out His wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. But here in verse 1 of chapter 4 is a picture, if you will, of the rapture of the church, where Jesus will say to His church, Come up here. Or as the old King James Version says, come up hither. Let me ask you this. Could you imagine, just picture in your mind, suddenly finding yourself in the presence of the Lord. I read a story a few years ago about a woman who wanted to uh, Haagen-Dazs ice cream uh, parlor up, up in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and she uh, ordered herself an ice cream cone. And as she received her cone, uh, she turned to go to the counter to pay for it, and she was standing face-to-face with the late Paul Newman. He was an actor, for those of you younger people, but a uh, good actor. But, and seeing him, she froze up. He smiled at her and said hello, but she was completely unable to speak. Well, she finally paid for her ice cream, feeling embarrassed, unable to speak. She, she slipped out the door. She walked a little way from the ice cream shop and realized uh, after she regained her composure that she didn't have her ice cream cone with her. So she went back into the haagen store and as she's walking in, lo and behold, who's coming walking out? But Paul Newman again is walking out. Now, she's standing there face to face again and now he asks her, are you looking for your ice cream cone? And she still can't speak. She just kind of nods her head. So he smiles and says to her, well, I happen to notice that you put it in your purse when you put your change away. (laughs) I mean, I would imagine it was probably really exciting to meet Paul Newman. But let me ask you this. Can you imagine what it will be like when we actually meet God face to face in heaven? That's the old Mercy Me song uh, says, I can only imagine, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart fill? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or on my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. You know, the prophet Isaiah, he had an opportunity. He had a vision of the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. But Isaiah actually spoke his words. Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of unclean people. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He recognized where he was, where he stood. Let me ask you the question this morning again. Can you imagine what it will be like when we see God face to face? Let me tell you. 
We'll cover that next week. <laughs> this morning, however, we're going to look at the first look at, at the means of transportation that will take us into his presence and the timing of when that may or may not take place. And those are our two points if you're taking notes this morning. Number one, the transportation. Number two, the timing. Number one, the transportation. Now we know the individual route. The transportation, which is when the Lord calls us home individually through death. In the book of Job, we're told that the Lord has decided the length of our lives. It says, you know how many months we will live, and we are not given a minute longer. And then Job asks this question. He says, if a man dies, shall he live again? And then he answers that same question a few chapters ahead in chapters 19, verses 25 to 27. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Amen. So the first mode of transportation that God could use to get us home is, is to, to heaven is through death. In fact, Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that judgment. But the second mode of transportation that many of us are praying for, hoping for, looking towards, is when the Lord takes his church home to be with him in this event called the rapture of the church. Now, there are a couple of uh, specific scriptures that we find that specifically describe this thing called the rapture of the church. One of them is found in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17, where it says there, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Now, we know those words caught up in the Greek is the word harpezo. In the Latin, it's the word rapturos. In English, it is our word rapture. So we can call it the harpozo of the church, the catching up of the church. We, you know, or we can call it what is commonly called the, the rapture of the church, meaning to be snatched away as the Lord comes, the trumpet sounds, and we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Another verse to describe this very clearly, the rapture of the church, 1 Corinthians 15, 51-53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So the transportation... To the presence of the Lord, it's going to either be through death or through the rapture of the church. I love the way Mark Hitchcock in his book, Could the Rapture Happen Today, defined the rapture. He does it this way. He says, the rapture of the church is that future event when Jesus Christ will descend from heaven to resurrect the bodies of departed believers and to transform and translate the bodies of living believers immediately into his glorious presence in a moment of time and then escort them to heaven to live with him forever. Doesn't that sound so great? Amen. Now this brings us to our second point, the timing. When will the church 
be raptured. Well, Paul tells us it's going to be in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. That word, word moment is a translation of the Greek word atomos, which is our English word atom. It's used of something indivisible. It speaks of that which is the smallest conceivable quantity. A moment in time. What is a moment? A twinkling of an eye. Now, a twinkling of an eye is not a blink. It's faster than a blink. It's a vibration of the eyeball. It's something that's instantaneous. It's the smallest uh, conceivable quantity of time in an instantaneous fashion. That's what he's saying here. Now, when will it take place? Well, I've made a few references the last couple of weeks. Some say that it's possible that the rapture of the church could happen on the Jewish feast called the Feast of Trumpets, or what is called Rosh Hashanah. And what, that, what makes this exciting is that Rosh Hashanah actually started this last Friday evening at sundown and will end tonight at sunset. So this is the Feast of Trumpets. It's the fifth of the seven great feasts that God instructed Israel to commemorate. Now here's a video that I found, and I've shown this probably about, about five years ago. Uh, it, it's from a few years back. But Pastor Ray Bentley, they celebrate. He's a pastor of Maranatha Chapel in uh, San Diego, California. He, they celebrate the, the Feast of Trumpets every year. And he had, did this little video explaining the Feast of the Lord. And I thought it was easier. He does it better than I can do. So I'll have Jacob show that, the video for us. Since 2008, Maranatha has been celebrating the Feast of Trumpets, as well as learning about the other biblical feasts from Leviticus chapter 23 that all point to the Lord Jesus Christ. But why? Why do we choose to celebrate this Jewish holiday? I believe this specific holiday has some very significant applications, and the insight is God's eternal plan. It was on top of Mount Sinai that God gave Moses the dates and observances of the seven feasts of the Lord, which are Unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonements, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. It is interesting to note that the Hebrew word for feast is moed, which more literally translated means divine appointment. And more importantly, all seven feasts point to an audible faith in Jesus. These feasts are separated into two seasons, the spring feast and the fall feast. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He was then buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread and resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. Fifty days later, the Holy Spirit was given to us on Pentecost. Now, the entire human race exists between the Feasts of the Spring and Fall, which represent the Church Age. The Lord is harvesting believers and patiently beckoning those who will follow Him until the Fall Feast comes. These Fall Feasts are to be fulfilled in the Second Coming of Jesus. And the first of these is the Feast of Trumpets. This represents, I believe, the rapture of the church, while the Feast of Atonement represents the second coming, and the Feast of Tabernacles represents the kingdom age of the Lord. We want to celebrate as a church the Feast of Trumpets. Jesus himself said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and we look forward to that day and welcome the return of our Lord. Pastor Ray mentioned the Feast of Trumpets, a shofar trumpet, was to be blown. Leviticus 23, verse 24 and 25 says this, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. 
We have a gal from the church that, that brought in a shofar. It's a shofar, an actual uh, uh, trumpet that they would use before this. And so, uh, so here goes. Okay. I was told after first service I needed to practice between services. I don't know if it got any better. I actually have a brief video. I think it's only 45 seconds of, of a, a guy blowing one the way it should sound. Go ahead and show that video. It sounded the same. That's very cool. There was a, a, I don't know, it was last year or two years ago. Was it you that heard the trumpet sound or Joey? You heard the trumpet. So Joey, Laura heard this trumpet sound and she says to Joey, my other son, my son, he says, she says, did you hear that trumpet? And Joey goes, no, I don't hear it. I, I don't hear it. You really hear a trumpet? I don't hear the trumpet. <laughs> The shofar was to be blown as a call to, to stop working and to gather together to worship the Lord. It was also called to, to warn of danger. It meant you were to stop what you were doing and gather the troops together, uh, uh, you know, uh, for, of war together, awaiting the king's arrival. I think you can see where I'm going with this. Revelation chapter 4, John the Apostle says, uh, and the verse first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here. First Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend with the trumpet of God. First Corinthians 15.52, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. There's going to be a trumpet sound to mark the rapture of the church. Could the Feast of Trumpets mark the return of Jesus Christ for his church and the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets? I certainly hope so. Now listen, if the Feast of Trumpets started Friday night at sundown and will be finished this Sunday evening at sunset, and if we go by Jerusalem time, then it's possible, like right now, the rapture of the church could take place. Right now. Right now. I thought, maybe today. Maybe. Oh, well. Now you may say, Pastor Tom, you're date-setting. You know, and, 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 and no one knows the day or the hour. Actually, you're right. No man does, does know the day or the hour. But listen to this. There's something interesting. The way they would determine the day of the Feast of Trumpets would begin with, was all related to the day of the new moon. Uh, a new moon is that thumbnail-looking moon. And, and the Feast of Trumpets does not begin by a calendar date. It begins by the new moon. Now, the two priests would... Uh, would uh, call the beginning of the feast once they visually saw from Jerusalem the crescent moon. If it's cloudy or too dark, then it doesn't count. So from ancient times, even all the way to today, the Jewish people, they don't celebrate the feast just one day, but they make sure they get the crescent moon so they celebrate it over two days. 
And in fact, in Aramaic, the feast is known as the Feast of One Long Day, but also has a nickname, uh, an idiom. It's known as, is it called the Feast of You Don't Know the Day or the Hour. So the Feast of Trumpets would start on the first or second or the third day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, depending on the moon. So when Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour of his return, he may very well have been alluding to the Feast of the Trumpets. And to the Jewish mindset, they would understand this, which they would also understand when Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now we know the times and the seasons. It's like this, if I told you that I'm coming over to your house to visit you, but I'm going to get there on the day, you know, uh, I'm not going to tell you the day of the year, but I'm going to get there when you guys are all gathered together in your home as a family, and you're all eating turkey and stuffing and green bean casserole and cranberry sauce and watching football on TV and having pumpkin pie for dessert. You say, oh, Tom's coming over on Thanksgiving. We didn't invite him, but he's coming. (laughs) Listen, I'm not date setting, but there's certainly nothing wrong with speculating a little bit. If anything, it gets us excited about the return of the Lord. And we should be. But, but this is just something to think about, something to consider that since the first four feasts were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, could it be that the last possible, the, the last the feast could be fulfilled by the, least of the Feast of Trumpets? Listen, it could be in the next hour. It could be tomorrow. It could be in the next couple of days. I'm okay with all of that. But what I do know, I look around the the signs and and seasons, and I see it is very, very soon. Now, there are those that that have different views as to when the Lord will come back for His church. There are those who say, well, the Lord is going to come back right in the middle of the Great Tribulation period, three and a half years midway through that. We call them mid-tribbers. But there are also those who say that the Lord's going to rapture His church at the end of the seven-year uh, tribulation period where the believers will be caught up to be with the Lord and turn around and come back right down with the Lord. And we call them, you guessed it, the post-tribbers. You can name a serial after them, Kellogg's post-tribbers. <laughs> and they'll use Revelation chapter 8 and nine, and the seven trumpet judgments to point out that the rapture happens at that last trumpet, meaning the church is going to go through part of the tribulation, so buy your guns and your beans and bunker down. But here's the problem. In Revelation chapter 8 and 9, those are angels blowing the trumpet for judgment. In 1 Corinthians 15.52, it says that the rapture is the last trump of God. How many trumps of God are there? Just two. Not four, not seven, not ten, just two. There's a first trump of God blown at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19.19. When the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered in my voice. That's the first trump. And then there's the last trump of God blown at the rapture of the church. Again, 1 Corinthians 15.52, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Only two trumps. The first trump and the last trump and then there's Donald Trump, but he doesn't count. Just two trumps of God. My wife says, yeah, no, he does count. He's the last trump. No, that's not how this works. 
Back to the feast for just a moment of trumpets. During the celebration of the feast, there were two trumpets that were blown when they trumpeted. And again, why the two, two trumpets that were blown? Well, number one, to gather the people together and let them know it was time to move. And number two, to, to signal the start of war. Isn't that the same thing for the rapture of the church? God gathers his people together and let us know that it's time for us to move from this fallen world into heaven. And it signals the start of a war, the great tribulation. Because shortly after that last trumpet sounds and the church is raptured, that great tribulation will begin. Final showdown between God and Satan and sinful man that follows Satan. Now what I want to do this, the, the next time, the time that we have left, is to look at eight reasons why I, why we believe that the Lord will come back just prior to the great tribulation period. Now we call that the pre-tribbers. Or the right one. Uh, actually, this is not something we should be divided over. Okay, I tell my friends who don't believe in the pre-trib rapture, that's okay, we'll explain everything to you on the way up. <laughs> but again, eight reasons why we believe the church will be caught up to be with the Lord prior to the great tribulation. Reason number one It's the natural flow of the book of Revelation. Take this back to our divine outline. Back to verse 1 of chapter 4. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Same words used in verse 19 of chapter 1. The things that must take place after this, same words Jesus used. After this is the Greek words metatalta, meaning after these things. After what things? After the things of chapter 2 and chapter 3. That represented the church age. And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 4, Behold, a door standing open in heaven. Church goes through that door. We read of them next in chapter 5, the church, where it says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Who is redeemed? The church. Believers in Christ, there in the presence of the Lord. Only believers can sing that song. So then the remainder of the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, we see the things taking place on this earth. After the church age. After the church is removed from the earth. Again, the church then is not seen till chapter 19 when that door is opened up once again and Christ comes back to the earth with his church. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Revelation 19.11 This is why we at Calvary take, take a very strong view of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. It's a natural flow of the book of Revelation. Brings us to the second reason why we, why we believe in a pre-trib rapture. Number two, to bring comfort to his people. Again, back to 1 Thessalonians verse 17 in chapter 4, we read, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Oftentimes people stop right there and they don't read verse 18. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So if the Lord is seeking to bring comforting words to us, 
the fact that we would have to go through the great tribulation period would not be words of comfort. I mean, think about how bad this tribulation is going to be. As a Christian, because you don't pledge your allegiance to the Antichrist by taking his mark, you won't be able to buy or sell without that mark. You will not be able to provide for your family. As a Christian during the Great Tribulation, you'll be tortured, put to death for your faith. And that's just a small part of it. Think about the hailstones coming down the sides of bowling balls, the pestilence, the sea turning to blood, the earthquakes, the, the huge locust-like creatures coming out of the earth with tails like, like scorpions that will hurt men for five months. How comforting is that? Lord, take me now if that's the case. There is no comfort in a message that says, I'm going to go through even part of the Great Tribulation. But understand this. There must be tribulation. See, we're told in 1 John 4, 8 that our God is a, is a God of love, that God is love. And because God is love, then true love demands that there be judgment of wrongdoing. Billy Graham once wrote that when he and his wife were, 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 were when his wife was reading a, a book that he was writing, that, that Ruth, she got to the part where he was describing the terrible downward spiral of our nation's moral standards and the idolatry of, of worshiping false gods such as technology and sex. And Ruth turned it to Billy, her husband, and startled him by exclaiming, if God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I always thought it was Billy who said it, but I just found out recently it was his wife that said that. But she makes a very good point. If God is a God of love, then love demands that there must be judgment for wrongdoing. It's like this. There, there have been times when I would be out with my wife or family, and I'll hear maybe we're at a restaurant, and there's some, some kids or something next to us, and they're just using filthy language. Now, I'm not going to let that person continue with the, with the filthy language in my family's presence. I'm not going to let them speak that way. Why? Because I love my family. I'm going to say something to them. I'm going to tell them to watch their language. And if you love somebody, if you truly care about somebody, you will not let the perversity, you'll not let the wickedness go on. If you love them, you will defend them. Now, God loves His people. God loves His children. The problem is there's evil in this world and terrible sin. And because God is a God of love, He cannot allow that sin, that iniquity to go on forever. Therefore, He must judge. And even though God is patient, even though He's long-suffering, full of compassion, it's because of that long-suffering and that, that compassion that He has to judge. It's like this, if this wild dog came into our, into our home, you know, and, and he's standing there and his fangs are sticking out and he's foaming at the mouth, he's got rabies and he's growling. Now, would it be a loving thing for me to do if Aubrey Finley and Madeline, my grandkids, are in the other room and I, I say, oh, look at that puppy. Let's go pet that puppy. Oh, let's, let's pet pup pup. Oh, isn't it so sweet? And the dog's <laughs> all growling at that. I don't think so. Man, I have a responsibility because I love my family to protect my family. That dog has got rabies. I'm going to destroy that dog. And that's going to accomplish two things. Because of, Number one, because of the love for my family, I'm first of all protecting them by getting them away from the dog. And because, secondly, that dog was doomed anyway, he's already on his way to death. He's already infected. There's no hope for him. So by killing the dog, I'm putting that dog out of his misery. See, there's going to come a point when God will look at this world 
And he'll say, enough is enough. I have been patient with you long enough. Now I must protect my children. Judgment must come. That is that those that have embraced him as their father, those who have come into his house, he's going to protect. He's going to uh, then pour out his judgment on the dead dogs, so to speak. This infected, polluted, immoral environment that this world is turning into, God must judge because love demands judgment. But again, before his judgment comes down, the Lord will take his kids up. That's comforting. That's comforting words to to know that we're not going to be going through this great tribulation. Now this ties into reason number three, why we will be raptured before the tribulation period, because number three, God has not appointed us to wrath. You might jot down 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, offers these words of hope and encouragement. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with them. Therefore, comfort each other and edify with us, just as you also are doing. The time of the great tribulation period is God's wrath being poured down upon this earth. We'll experience tribulation. We all experience tribulation. Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation, have problems. But this is something different. This is God's wrath being poured out upon us. God is not has not appointed us to wrath, though, because God, His wrath was poured out upon Jesus for us. He took the wrath for us. The wrath that you deserve, the wrath that I deserve, the penalty for our rebellion and sin against God was absorbed upon Jesus. And now by putting my faith and trust in Him, I'm a child of God. And let me tell you, God protects His kids. He protects His kids. Let me give you another example of God's protection. If I were going to fumigate my house, you know, they come in and you got termites. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to tent your house because and, and of termites. And the first thing I would do is to make sure that all of my kids were out of the house. Well, what if some of your kids are disobedient? Well, you know what? I'd still make sure they're out of the house. <laughs> well, what if they're being a little bit rebellious and doing something they shouldn't be doing? Yeah, I'd still make sure they're out of the house. What if they're fighting with each other? Yeah, it doesn't matter. I will still make sure they're out of my house when the tent is covered the house to deal with the infestation of termites because they're my kids. Yeah, my family isn't perfect, but I love them anyway. And I would say to each one in my family, come away. I'd snatch them out if they're not there. Come on, I've got to get you out of here. In the same way, our loving Father isn't going to make us stay in a place where He's pouring out His judgment just because maybe we're fighting with one another just because we, we happened to, to, to fall and, and we, didn't, we were doing something that wasn't pleasing to the Lord at the time of the rapture. Someone once asked, well, who will go up in the rapture? It's simple. Christians go up in the rapture. If you are a child of God, you will not experience the wrath of God on this earth. Now listen, that doesn't mean you can live however you want to, please, however you want to however you please. We have a responsibility as God's children to live our lives pleasing to Him. The last thing you or I want to do is to be ashamed at His coming. To be involved in doing something that that you would be embarrassed to stand before God instantly. Next reason, number four, we will be raptured before the Great Tribulation. Because the Bible says we will be counted worthy to escape. Now there are those who say, well you Christians, you believe in this rapture stuff because all it is is escapism. 
I say, you are absolutely right. In fact, Jesus even said the same thing in Luke chapter 21, Matthew 24, talking about the events of the tribulation. He said this in Luke 21. He says, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and the day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell in the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. See, if escaping was not an option, then why wouldn't Jesus say, watch and prepare, take heed to yourselves, go and buy your guns and buy your beans and store up all that quantity of food and, and just you know, hang on to your hats because it's going to get rough. No, he says, pray, pray that you may be counted worthy to escape. Listen, the only way, though, that you're counted worthy to escape, it's not your own worthiness, it's filthy rags. It's Jesus Christ, what he's done for you. You've been covered, if you've been forgiven. God looks at his son, he doesn't look at you and he says, you're counted worthy. Not You're not, but Jesus is worthy, therefore you get to escape. Those that have surrendered their hearts and life to Jesus Christ are counted worthy to escape. C.S. Lewis put it this way, it's a, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. We're meant to look for the rapture. Number five, the fifth reason we'll be raptured before the great tribulation because number five, the great tribulation is known as a time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30 verse 7, Alas, for that day is great so that there is none like it, and it's a time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. See, the purpose of the great tribulation is to shake up Israel, to shake up the Jewish people. It's not a time of the church's trouble. If you've studied Romans chapters 9 through 11, you know that God is not done with the nation of Israel. Now, there are those who say, no, God is done with Israel. In fact, according to Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, it says there that God is done with Israel and everything promised for Israel is now promised for the church. It's called replacement theology. The church has replaced Israel. It's bad theology. I have a problem with that. But they use Galatians 6, verse 15 and 16, which says this, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. But they say that verse reads at the end, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, the Israel of God. There's a problem. They've taken out a conjunction. They've taken out a preposition. They're making you think there's only one group of believers there. Again, verse 16 says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Two groups there are being spoken of in verse 16, not one. They leave out the word and upon. Church is not called the Israel of God. There are two groups. Circumcision, uncircumcision, Gentiles and the Jews. The Israel of God refers to the Jewish Messianic believers. Now this we know. When the rapture happens, there will be, or up until the rapture happens rather, there will be some Jews that give their life to Christ. We call them Messianic Jews. But in the end, they all will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Fulfilling the promises of God, Deuteronomy 4 verse 30 and 31 says, 
this concerning Israel. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days and times, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. That's to the nation of Israel. This is to the Jewish people. It goes on in Zechariah chapter 13 verse 6 which says, And one will say to him, What are those wounds between your arms? And he will answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Jesus is speaking of the Jewish people. See, during the days of the Great Tribulation, the eyes of the Jewish people will be opened to finally embrace Jesus as Messiah. And God will see them through this Great Tribulation, a time of Jacob's trouble, not the church's trouble. This takes us to the sixth reason why we'll be raptured before the Great Tribulation. Number six, we're to be looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. Listen to Titus 2, verse 11 and 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus tells us that we're to be looking, or Paul tells Titus, and we read there, we're to be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. But you see, those that believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, three and a half years into the tribulation, uh, who are you going to be looking for? Not Jesus Christ. You're going to be looking for the Antichrist to show up because then you'll know how much longer you have. But nowhere in Scripture are we told to look for the Antichrist. Why? Because we're not going to be here. This brings us to the seventh reason for the pre-trip rapture of the church. Number seven, there are examples of different types of raptures found in the Old Testament. Now, they say the best commentary in the Bible is the Bible, and I agree. There's many examples of the rapture of the church prior to judgment we find in Scripture. I want to point out three. First one's found in Luke chapter 17, where Jesus said concerning the end times, he said that the days would be like Noah. Well, in the days of Noah, we have a great picture of what the last days were truly like and what they're going to be like. And there's a similarity. Genesis 6, 5 says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was a world that had given over to sin, all sorts of sexual immorality and violence and selfishness and perversity. Man, it certainly sounds like we're living in the days of Noah. Jesus says that in the days of Noah, it will be when he's ready to return. And the time of Noah, God was going to judge the earth with a flood. God's wrath was about to be poured out on sinful mankind. Well, if you remember, Noah and his family were protected in the ark. And the ark is really a picture of the nation of Israel. God is going to protect the nation of Israel during that great tribulation period. But what about the church? Well, during the days of Noah, there was a, a man named Enoch. And the church is pictured of this man. Genesis 5, verse 24 says, Enoch walked with God and it was not because God took him. His own personal rapture right there. First one to be raptured. It's a picture of the church being taken out before judgment comes. Another picture of the rapture in the Old Testament, we have the story of Lot. Jesus also said that in the last days, it will be as it was in the days of Lot. Well, what was going on during Lot's day? Rampant homosexuality, sexual immorality. 
Man, all you need to do is look at California and you see, uh, I mean, what's going on there with the recent pedophile laws and you see just how much it displeases the heart of God. But the story goes in Genesis 18 that God sends His angels to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. So Abraham asked God to hold off. If he could find 50 righteous people, would you hold off your judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah? And God said, you betcha. For, for 50 people, well then... Abraham got in the bidding process a little bit. Well, Lord, suppose there were 45. Would you, you know, for 45. Lord, how about 40? Lord, if there were 10, God said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. There weren't even 10. Only one lot. So God removed him. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7 says, God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Lot was delivered from the destruction. He and his daughters were taken out, removed before God would begin judgment. A picture of the rapture. Finally, the third picture in the Old Testament we find in Daniel chapter 3. It's the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Or they're better known their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You recall King Nebuchadnezzar made this statue, demanded everyone to worship him. Much like the Antichrist is going to do three and a half years into the tribulation. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no way, Jose, no way, Nebi, you know. And as a result, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, standing there, says, didn't we throw three men into that furnace? How come we see four? And the fourth there is like the Son of God. And again, that's a beautiful picture about what God is going to do for Israel during that time of tribulation. God will see them through. But the question is, where was Daniel? Daniel's absent from the story. And wherever he was, this made a great picture of the church gone before judgment. So we have different examples in the Old Testament of the rapture taken before the tribulation. God taking Enoch and Lot and, and Daniel. All a picture of the church before judgment. This brings us to a final reason why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. It's number eight. It's because what we see in a Jewish wedding ceremony. Uh, and, and this is great. Uh, in the Jewish culture, marriages were often arranged early in life, pre, pre-arranged marriages. You know, if you were little Billy, and you might have been arranged with Margaret as you get older, and, and Billy and Margaret really get married. And So now they get to age. And now it's time, and they can actually be married. Well, one thing was needed before they would get married, and that would be the home where they were going to live in. That home needed to be prepared. So this young man, the bridegroom, would begin, begin to build a dwelling place for he and his bride. Well, the wedding could not take place until he was finished. Now, what's interesting is that the father of the groom would be the one that says, okay, it's done, you can go get your bride. What a great comparison that is to what Jesus said in John 14, 1-4. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. But also Jesus said, No man knows the day or the hour of that coming except his Father. But Jesus again did say we should know the times and the seasons to help us understand when things are getting closer. Now the bridegroom would be working on the house, and the bride would be getting reports from her friends and the relatives. Hey, he's getting close. 
man, I'm looking, I'm seeing, man, they, they got the roof up there and, and the, the windows are on, the doors up, and it could be any day now. Finally, the day comes. It's finished. And over the years, it became a custom for the bridegroom to surprise his bride in the middle of the night or early in the morning. He and his groomsmen would come down into the house making a lot of noise and awaken the bride and, and her bridesmaid. So they needed to be ready. But that so ties in with the ten virgins, five with oil and five without. Makes total sense. But here's the good part. Once it was time, the bridegroom would go and get his bride, return to the house that he has prepared where they would celebrate for seven days, and then the bride would be presented. When we look at the Jewish wedding ceremony back then, we see how God represents uh, how, how it represents God's plan for His church right now. We are the bride of Christ. We're betrothed to Christ. He has gone to prepare a place for us. No one knows the day, the hour He will come for us except the Father. The bride, the church gets reports. The time is near. It's looking, the man is looking like it. Look at the season. Once the bridegroom comes, He'll take us away for a seven-year feast. And then the church will be presented with Christ at His second coming. So there you have it. There's many more, but there's eight reasons why the Bible clearly teaches the rapture will take place before the tribulation begins. This brings us right back to where we started in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4 when Jesus says, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Come up before judgment comes down. And we'll see in the next couple of weeks in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 the congregation of Christians sitting around the throne in heaven worshiping the Lord before judgment comes down. And then chapters 6 through 19, the judgment. But listen, it's important that we understand that the Lord could come back at any moment. I think we've made that point pretty clear. Knowing this, it should do something to our hearts. Because we all have loved ones. We have friends. We have families that don't know Jesus. They're not believers. And the day is going to come when suddenly we're going to be taken up and we're going to be taken out and they're going to be scratching their heads going, what is happening here? What's going on? And they're going to remember the words that you shared with them. And we would pray that they would give their hearts and life to Christ at that moment. And I do believe that after the rapture, there's going to be the greatest revival in world history. Once millions of people vanish, the ones left behind will say, whoa, it was true. Lord, I, Lord, I need you. Now there are those, and maybe you've heard this, well, I'll just wait till after this thing you called the rapture. I'll wait, and when you guys disappear, and this Antichrist guy shows up and tells me I have to take a mark, then I'll become a believer. Then I'll, I'll put my trust in Jesus Christ. You might think this through just a little, for a moment. Because you might choose to become a, a Christian then and you can call upon the Lord then and you can refuse to take the mark then and, and but it's going to cost you your head. It'll cost you your life. But more importantly, if you can't live for Jesus now, what makes you think you can die for Him during that time? If you can't stand up and receive Jesus Christ in this day of grace, what makes you think that, that you'll be able to stay in that time under intense persecution in the middle of the tribulation? Well, I'll get saved then. Very dangerous. Came a Russian roulette. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Time is short. Jesus is coming soon. There was an old bumper stick. If you've been a Christian for a while, you might remember it that said, Get right or get left. <laughs> Listen, as we close this morning, 
if you don't know that you'd be raptured out of here, if the Lord would come back, if that trumpet were to sound, you wouldn't hear it. You don't know for sure that you would hear it. If you don't know, then now's the time to make sure your sin is forgiven. Now is the time to commit your life to Jesus Christ. If you've not done that yet, why don't you do it right now so you can know with confidence that you'll be ready for the Lord? Because here's the other thing. If death could come knocking on your door because you have that appointment. If that's the case, you wouldn't have to fear even death because you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Just say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you for sending Jesus to the cross, dying for every sin I've ever committed. Forgive me. You have to ask for that forgiveness and make that commitment to follow Jesus Christ. If you want to make that commitment this morning, I want to give you that opportunity. Let's bow our heads and our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. Thank you for your word. Lord, because we recognize that you are a loving God, but you also are a just God. And your word tells us you are long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Father, I pray right now, if there's anyone here in this room right now, that they're not sure of their eternal destiny. They're not sure what would happen if they were to die today. They were not sure if they would go up to be with the rapture. Lord, would you touch their heart and help them to make this decision and make sure that they're sure that they know. Lord, help them to put their faith and trust in you. Help them to turn from their sin. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and Christians are praying, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? You want to be born again? Would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? This is just between you and the Lord. You want to give your life to Christ today? Today is the day. Now is the time for salvation. Just raise your hand up so I can pray for you. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, the promises we find in it. Lord, we just say, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your son's name, in in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. So I'll stand and do one last song together.